Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. As we have done for many, many years now, when the Open Society Institute has one of their meetings on talking about race, we have a conversation about that conversation that's about to take place in Baltimore, this one taking place Thursday evening, which we're going to begin to talk about. It's on harm reduction and communities of color. And we're joined by Dr. Samuel Roberts, who is Associate Professor of History at Columbia University and Associate Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, and Cassandra Frederick, who is the New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance, and also joining us is Scott Nelson, Director of the Drug Addiction Treatment Program uh, at OSI Baltimore. And folks, welcome. Good to have you all with us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. So let me just very quickly begin, uh, Scott, and talk about what you set up here for people to kind of wrestle with uh, on on Thursday night, and and then we'll jump into the heart of the matter. Uh, well, thank you. So, um, as you mentioned, you know we've been doing this talking about race series for for a number of years, and it's it's been very popular uh, for for uh, for folks to come out and have an opportunity to really talk about tough things uh, uh, in, in terms of race, race relations in Baltimore, uh, sometimes racial tension in Baltimore that may exist. Uh, and so um, I direct the Drug Addiction Treatment Program at Open Society Institute Baltimore, and I thought, that, you know, talking about race, uh, uh, talking about race series would be a great opportunity for us to blend in together sort of talking about addiction in Baltimore City which, as you know, you've done several uh, mini-shows about it, actually. Yes. Uh, Baltimore has a, a really serious issue with drug use, uh, but, but that is overlaid uh, um, with the racial issues that Baltimore experiences. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity to bring together the folks who are sort of public health and addiction people with the folks who are racial justice folks and, and really have a, a blended conversation. So in, in many ways, you know, I think the, this, this issue about drug addiction um, uh, and harm reduction but especially let's start with just drug addiction and, and where our society has been over the last 50 years. I mean, the conversations have shifted a lot. Um, I'm thinking about the work you do, Cassandra Frederick, uh, the stuff you've done uh, around drug policies, c- helping cut down the arrest for marijuanas in New York, marijuana in New York, um, and more. That, that the, the way we look at this, it's been so hard to change the conversation, but it seems to be shifting. Yeah, I mean, I think that the policy wins that we've been able to achieve in the last 10 years have been um, definitely influenced by the incessant organizing that public health and um, people that use drugs have been doing, right? So you don't have a conversation in New York about marijuana arrests um, without having a conversation about the racial disparities, without having a conversation about how policing happens. And I think we're in a different place, um, or we were in a different place, where there was more space to talk a lot about these different issues. You know, I think oftentimes when I go to communities of color and have conversations, these are all things that people know. I'm not teaching anyone anything new. Um, (laughs) These are just things that people have tried to suppress and tell communities of color that they do not exist. But I think if you talk to any um, person um, go to any community room and you ask them that if the drug war impacted communities of color, um, how they impacted communities of color, like um, how they will impact white communities, people will say, um, no, they, this wouldn't happen. They wouldn't allow this to happen. And so when we're talking about um, the issues of heroin and opioids, we're seeing how this is um, showing up. Um, and we actually have more tools to figure out how we can lead with race in the conversation through the work that we've been doing around mar- ending marijuana prohibition. But to be very honest, I mean, I think we only got to ending marijuana prohibition because um, the decision, white decision makers decided that they could figure out how to regulate it. So if you even look at the states that have been able to legalize marijuana in the first run, we're talking about places like Colorado, Washington State, Alaska, Oregon, there's a reason why it's those states as opposed to the Georgias, New York, um, Florida. You know, I think we got to a place with California where that was able to happen, but I think that's because 
um, people already thought marijuana was legal in California. Um, <laughs> but, we've been able, <laughs> but that didn't happen until November. Um, but again, marijuana, medical marijuana was passed in 1996 in California because of the face associated with whose pain we needed to deal with, which was like white grandmas and white kids. So before I turn to Dr. Roberts, let me just pick up on one thing you said and just be really clear about it and focus in. I mean, it, it, I think that when you talk about <clears throat> the legalization, the decriminalization of marijuana, the legalization of marijuana, the, the states you talk about other than California are states that are known as predominantly white states. Correct. Right? And even in those states, when you read the stats, this, a disproportionate amount of people going to jail for marijuana arrests are black people, Native Americans, and people of color. Correct. Right? So so, to, so just I mean, sparse, I mean, stretch that a bit more, more for us. I mean, so, so is that why you can't pass a thing like this in Michigan or in New York State or in... Maryland or in places where the communities of color are in a plurality or a majority or or, or, or take or num- a large numbers of people? Is that why it's not happening there, do you think? I think people are scared of when, I think when we have a conversation about drugs and communities of color, it engenders a certain particular kind of narrative. But in this moment, what we are seeing with opioid crisis, when you put together drugs or heroin and white people, you're hearing narratives like accidental addicts. You're hearing things like, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. And that kind of narrative is shaped by who the face of the dominant user population is. I think the interesting thing about marijuana is that despite the arrest and enforcement being so focused in communities of color, all our data continuously shows that if you hold all things current, we use at the same rate. But if you look at young people of color, which have been um, intentionally incarcerated or in marijuana laws have been enforced upon, you'll actually know that young white people are, are using at higher rates. Um, and so part of that is there is a decision happening at the higher level about who we will enforce drug laws against. Um, and then who can engender the conversation to change that space. I mean, it is not by coincidence that the New York Times will have an article um, on the front page that talks about in the heroin crisis, white families call for a gentler war on drugs. It tells you multiple things. It tells you that they only want to end the drug war for heroin. It tells you that they recognize that the war on drugs was too harsh. The war on drugs that they did on black folks is too harsh, so they want gentler. And the only families that can engender that kind of narrative are white families. So that title alone really just encapsulated the master class of how race affects policy. So, so Dr. Roberts, let's, let's take this in a historical perspective then, which you've done a lot of work on, um, and, yeah. and, and how America has viewed this kind of drug issue for the last 50 years, 60 years. Well, I, I, we could go back more than that, maybe beyond a century and a quarter. Well, take us back then. I think historically, <laughs> uh, we could <laughs> go you know, much further than the last you know, 50, 60, or 70 years. If we think about every drug episode, meaning every, you know, major political controversy surrounding a particular drug, all of them until this recent one have been essentially racially coded. So if you think of opium in the Chinese in the 19th century, a lot of prohibition, particularly in the South, but also in the Northeast, you know, was anti-Catholic, you know, when and Irish people and Eastern Europeans were not, you know, they were kind of off-white. They weren't white, really. Um, you think about marijuana in the 1930s associated with uh, Mexican immigrants. And cocaine in the early 20th century, and then cocaine again in the 1980s associated with African Americans, and heroin associated with African Americans, and uh, particularly uh, Puerto Ricans in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s as well. <clears throat> I don't think that it is any coincidence, just to reiterate what Cassandra just said, that this sympathetic turn that we have now um, comes at a moment when we perceive the drug problem to be actually a white one. Um, and, you know, there's, 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 I, I find that very frustrating. I also find it, you know, also at least somewhat encouraging that there is some opportunity or some, um, you know, just some possibility for that kind of sympathy. Once that sympathetic door is open, we now know that that kind of sympathy must be extended to all people. We can't go back 
to the, you know, the Rockefeller drug laws. We can't go back to the omnibus drug bills of the 1980s, the Clinton, you know, crime bills of the 1990s. Um, we're crossing a very important historical point, something that we haven't done really in, I would probably say, since the federal government criminalized drugs on, a, on the federal level in 1914. So we're looking at slightly more than a century of deeply problematic to just, you know, shall we say, wrongheaded policy. And this is an opportunity to reverse that. Um, so I think that's the historical context. I would also like to say that there's a broader contemporary context, which is, um, you know, quite frankly, progressive politics. Um, with, we've had, you know, 20 years of just really unproductive discussions about, you know, liberal versus conservative, left versus right, you know, embodied by, uh, you know, Fox versus MSNBC, et cetera. And a lot of those have had, those, a lot of those distinctions have had no meaning whatsoever when it comes to public health issues like this. We've had in the 1990s, 1980s, really, um, we had Democrats and Republicans agreeing that we could incarcerate our way out of this problem, largely when we thought it was black and Latino um, people who were uh, bearing the, the brunt of this public health problem. Um, I think now is not just a historical moment in which we can think, rethink our drug policy in terms of public health, but also how we can rethink progressive politics in terms of a broader net of social inclusion that we haven't seen since the dreams of the, you know, really the early 1960s or during the New Deal of the 1930s. So one of the questions I had as you, as you were just describing this, this history and where, where we've come to, Dr. Roberts, and, and maybe we can, the three of us can explore this for a moment here, three of you all, that... You know, you, there was when, when the drug laws, when the, when the draconian laws were put in place in the '90s, that incarcerated began this ma this is the madness. Really, I'm sorry, Mark. Did you say the 1990s? Yes. I, I would actually say we should go back to the Reagan '80s. Really, okay. the Rockefeller laws of 1973 kind of started the whole thing. No, you're absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're absolutely correct. Um, and I think it reached a pinnacle under Clinton in the 1990s. Um, That's right. Right. So. And, and during that time, part of it was driven by um, the fact that most people involved were people of color. Part of it was driven also by, even in, in the black caucus and, and black politicians across the country and state legislators, legislatures, people's fear of violence in communities saying we have to lock people up and put them away. So in some ways, the danger of violence in America, America has always been a violent country. We are a violent nation. Um, you know, from genocide of Native Americans to lynchings and more in this country. This has been a violent nation. Um, but we are in some ways, it, I, I wonder if we're on a dangerous precipice here in terms of which way these drug laws will go with somebody like Jeff Sessions sitting in the, as attorney general, the people who are controlling uh, the House and the Senate right now, and the fact that violence is up in a lot of cities, um, in New Orleans, in Chicago, in Baltimore. Uh, which is causing panic, and the only thing people put their hands around are police, right? Which is the opposite of trying to deal with harm reduction or wrapping ourselves around kids who are in trouble to kind of come up with a different way of doing things. Are we at a, are we at a dangerous point again in terms of which way this could lean? I would I would caution against, um, I, and I, I get the point of the question, but I would, I would caution you and your listeners against um, any type of alarmism, shall we say. Uh, yes, we do have escalating violence in Chicago and New Orleans, but if you look nationally, um, typical like street violence is is down, um, and, and by all measures, from the gold standard measure of murder, right. um, mm -hmm. but uh, all the way down to petty street crime, it is down in every city. And if you look at those cities in which it's not, there are really there are are specific on the ground circumstances. Um, that explain that Chicago is, you know, just it had a terrible problem with its its system of governance and how it incorporates, um, particularly its black neighborhoods and communities, um, how it provides for its children, its schools. New Orleans has, has been having a terrible time despite the leadership shown by, you know, even some of the law enforcement down there as well. They have to be given credit. The former U.S. attorney uh, down in New Orleans, Kenneth Foley. Um, New years ago, when he was appointed under Obama, that you did not, that you can't incarcerate your way out of this. And he was doing diversion programs years ago before we even, you know, were discussing it. Um, 
So I think there's specific cities that have specific local and historical context. But nationally, violence is down. The other thing is that when we do have violence, it's very easy for the media and for politicians to put it on drugs. And it's one of those things where if there's drugs anywhere within the area, it becomes a drug-involved crime. Um, and that's not always the case. Um, those are often issues of drugs might stem from the same sources that you have issues of violence, which could be need, just people who don't have options, um, disconnected communities and youth. Um, but those aren't really drug problems. Those are kind of other social problems. And, 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 how would you, and how would you see that from your vantage point in New York, Cassandra, Frederick? I would say that Sam is exactly right. You know, we are in the middle of a very uh, low crime rate. They continuously talk about that. But I think there has been a lot of emphasis on um, increasing services and resources. And I think what's super important is that in this moment, I think that people are very aware of how these policies devastated and decimated certain communities. And you have unlikely allies or unlikely actors who are saying we can't arrest our way out of this problem. Their motivation behind it may be flawed, um, but I think you're seeing in large, in large ways that uh, decision makers and stakeholders are not falling for the kind of narrative that Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump are putting out there. I don't think we're out of the woods, and I don't think that um, all our elected officials have the political will to push back in a way that we need. But I definitely think that it's not a slam dunk conversation that was once um, germane in the 1980s and 90s, right? Like, I think that there are more elected officials that are willing to come out and be like, no, this is actually not what we need, and this is, and we, we don't want that. That is not going to work for us. Um, and in New York, you'll see that in the acting Brooklyn district attorney who had a press conference a few weeks ago where he had a press conference calling out Jeff Sessions and basically saying, this is not the kind of policy that I want to happen in Brooklyn, New York, which is a big thing because we know what the role of the attorneys have been for the last 50 years. So let me... So I'd, I'd like to jump in and just say that I, I, I agree with, uh, with what my fellow panelists here have said. I, I, I do have one concern. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, a couple of years ago we were at the place where we had, you know, a, a bunch of, I think, 100 and, over 100, 130 uh, police chiefs uh, and prosecutors that met in D.C. and it was like law enforcement leaders to reduce crime and incarceration and, and, and things seemed to be moving in a way that, 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 that really made sense in terms of uh, um, rethinking our approach to the war on drugs and, and hopefully ending that war on drugs. The thing that concerns me right now, the current place that we're in, is you know, what's going to happen when, the, the, when this uh, current uh, administration starts to squeeze states in terms of funding and then starts to offer these different uh, law enforcement agencies uh, money uh, to basically rekindle this uh, uh, war on drugs and, and, and uh, incarcerate more people, and, and how will states and, and, and localities respond to that in, in terms of uh, having uh, really stretched budgets and having that, that carrot being dangled in front of them? That, that is a concern that I have uh, moving forward. And, and, and Cassandra, uh, what he was talking about, what Nelson Scott was just saying, I mean, maybe think of Baltimore. I mean, because New York may be very different in terms of how how it can be approached and what your efforts would be. But in cities like this, with a with with a, with a Republican administration in Annapolis uh, that is now concerned about opioids because it's becoming a white suburban problem, uh, that's what's jumped up. And you and you have the problems facing Baltimore. Those kind of things, I think that that Scott Nelson, uh, Scott Nolan was describing could come to the surface and cause some real damage in terms of policy. Yeah, but I also think that we're not in a position um, that we were 30 years ago. The, even the conversation about policing has changed. Um, I, think, I think we have to give credit to the Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives Movement, which have really gotten people to have conversations about what public safety is, what does accountability look like, and what is law enforcement's role. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, scrap um, police departments won't take heed of Jeff Sessions' um, incentives, but I also think that we have a more educated populace about what they are willing to do and how they are willing to be policed. And I think that kind of conversation is important. And, I mean, you will look 
across the country in places where people are struggling with heroin addiction, it is in, in some places, it is law enforcement that is leading the conversation around diversion. And I don't think that's something that we can um, ignore. Um, there are law enforcement leaders who are like, what we've been doing has not been working and we have to do something different. And I don't agree with Jeff Sessions. I'm not saying that's all law enforcement. And, you know, as we see in videos, like in that random town in Florida where they had um, the sheriff was there with like mass police officers, there are police officers that have been dying for it to go back to the way that it was. But there is a growing contingency of law enforcement that are willing to do something different. And I think if we continue to invest in their education and build out their capacity that they can provide, they can be a stopgap for us in, in certain ways. I, I entirely agree with what Cassandra said. I would also, in, in my own response, I would say that I, I think I'm less worried about the possibility of us, quote unquote, going back to the 1980s and 1990s. I think Jeff Sessions would certainly love that. Um, but, well, first of all, I'm not convinced that he or many people in that administration will be there for much longer. Certainly <laughs> not for, I don't think they're going to be there for another term. Uh -huh. um, and most of them may not make it to the midterm. Um, but that's another story. Um, I think the tide of history itself is moving in a direction. We're not going to, it's not going to go back to the way things were in the 80s and 90s. What I'm concerned about, actually, is that the state of reform doesn't go far enough and doesn't take a full recognition to, as Cassandra said, to some of the same issues that a Black Lives Matter and many of the progressive right. movements of the moment, meaning the past particularly five years, that those issues that they've brought to light and those, those kind of political orientations that they've brought to the discussion, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that those are asserted within public health, within progressive politics, and within this thing that we call harm reduction. I mean, the harm reduction is still in a period where even those people who are within that movement or think they have a familiarity with it, everyone thinks they know what it is, but, you know, they may not actually all agree on what it is if you put them in a room together. So when you look at harm reduction as it's practiced and should be practiced in communities of color, it needs to take a recognition of the decades of neglect since the deindustrialization um, and, you know, capital flight of the 1960s and 70s. And it needs to really address those fundamental causes of poor health. So harm reduction shouldn't just be diversion. To take, you know, to take that metaphor, it's thank you for diverting my car from the cliff. But now the question is, are you going to take me where I need to go? Um, so diversion needs to be not just about, you know, we won't arrest our way out of the problem, but also are we starting to give people the option, the life option? for, you know, for vocational opportunity, for education, for good personal and community health, things that we have neglected on the backs of poor people, sacrificed at altars of fiscal austerity, you know, neoliberal, you know, reforms that, you know, that the fault of which could be laid at both Republicans and Democrats, um, both yeah. Reagan and Clinton and Bushes alike. So I think that's my real concern, that reform itself become something that's half a measure. I don't think we're going to go backwards. The question is, are we actually going to go forward? So, um, yeah, and I would just add to that that um, the other dangers about reforms is the way that we reify the stigma and problems that we've had before. So if you look at this conversation around fentanyl, um, you see how this conversation around um, drug sellers, right, people that sell drugs, is, again, codified based on race. So even in the way that we're talking about what's happening, users are now associated with white people in the large mainstream, and sellers are associated with black folks. And the things that reformers are willing to give up in this moment go straight to what Sam is, what Dr. Roberts is talking about, which is half-baked measures, right? Because we're not trying to deal with the whole problem. And again, we're sacrificing parts of our communities that have consistently been um, decimated by poor policy. And we see that in the way that using white faces to move forward social movements have only exacerbated root cause systematic issues in communities of color. It is not, it is, you know, we're celebrating the, 
you know, the 30-plus anniversary of Ryan White Money and the work that they've done around HIV-AIDS, and then how is it possible in the same New York Times paper that today talks on the front page talks about overdose and the skyrocketing dates, death also talks about how HIV, if you look at gay, bisexual, black men, um, they, their rates of um, HIV are higher than any other country in the world. That doesn't make sense, and that is because of the way that we built policy and reform and have fake measures, not dealing with the issues that Dr. Roberts brought up um, two minutes ago. So we have to take a very short break. When we come back, I want to kind of explore how you get beyond the half-baked measures, measures, excuse me, uh, and also explore where they might be implementing some of those things uh, in America, in the United States. Talk a bit about the Ithaca Plan that I know that uh, um, that you have worked on, Cassandra Frederick, and uh, we'll be back with Cassandra Frederick and Dr. Samuel Roberts and Scott Nolan in just a minute, and we're talking about. Uh, Race, Harm Reduction, Communities of Color, and Thursday evening at 6.30 p.m., June the 8th, at the University of Baltimore Law School's Moot Courtroom. Uh, you can be part of that conversation. We'll be right back. See this. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And as we have done for many years now, when talking about race conversations are taking place for the Open Society Institute, uh, we hit the airwaves with the guests who are coming uh, and engage conversations here on the air and encourage you all to also take part of them when the public event is taking place. This event, uh, taking place Thursday evening, tomorrow night, June the 8th, uh, at 6.30 p.m. at the University of Baltimore Law School's Moot Courtroom uh, down on Mount Royal Street, uh, is talking about race, harm reduction, and communities of color. And we're talking here with Dr. Samuel Roberts, who is Associate Professor of History at Columbia University and Associate Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Uh, he teaches and writes and lectures widely on African American history, the history of public health, urban history, uh, history of social movements, and more. Uh, and has been really, was really active in, in dealing with policies uh, around methadone maintenance in the treatment in the 60s, syringe exchange programs, and harm reduction. Uh, and we're also here with Cassandra Frederick, who is the New York State Director of, drug, of the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, she ran the daily operations of the statewide campaign that ended New York's racially biased ma marijuana arrests. And uh, she's, uh, she is a co-author of Blueprint for a Public Health and Safety Approach to Drug Policy and More, and helped advise the Ithaca Program, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, and we're also joined by Scott Nolan, who is Director of uh, the Drug Addiction Treatment Program for OSI Baltimore, who is helping bring this conversation here to our airwaves and to the city of Baltimore. So, having said all that, let's get back to our conversation. Um, let's talk a bit about where we think harm reduction has actually worked. Where has it been, has it been implemented anywhere uh, uh, in, in the United States in a significant way, Cassandra Frederick? Is, is there other models we can look at and said, yes, it works, and this is being done not in some small, not in Eugene, Oregon, but is it being done in cities like Chicago and other cities that have substantial communities of color? I mean, I think there's no question that harm reduction has worked. Um, there are thousands, if not millions, of lives that have been saved um, by providing materials for intravenous drug users, safer smoking kits, um, getting people to see their work, um, moving to reduce stigma. I think if harm reduction has worked in places that it has been implemented in, um, and I think what Dr. Roberts and I are offering is just feedback on ways that it can save, actually save more lives and do more than it already has. And I don't know, Sam, if you would agree with that. Dr. Roberts? Absolutely. I, I, w I would say that we should also think, um, at least your listeners should uh, think of harm reduction as well as also a philosophical orientation, that it's not a stopgap measure or, a, you know, a kind of compromise with some sort of, you know, morality. There's actually a way of thinking about how we build society, and that it's, it's really based on understanding that, as Cassandra said, uh, stigma uh, hyper-criminalization of people who use substances and, and of people generally, um, and social inequality are really not good ways to build viable and healthy communities. 
Uh, so in that regard, harm reduction is, a, is an approach that can be used in a, in a wide range of social policy. So I think I'm bring it back local for a moment. And, and Scott, I'm glad you're on the show with us too as well, just to bring it here at home for just for a second. I mean, so, you know, here in Maryland, it's been really difficult to kind of implement harm reduction in a, in a, in a broad way. Um, yeah, that we have we have some programs that are working. The program you all helped start at OSI, that is changing some police behavior and policies, uh, that in, in kind of a in, in, in neighborhood wide kind of experiment, experimental programs. But it's really been hard politically, for lots of reasons, to really make this a policy that is all encompassing, that is thorough and changes the entire nature of what we do. So I mean. I, Let's talk a bit about how we get there. I mean, how would you get there in a place like Baltimore? How do we get there? And then let's talk about how we get there in this entire country. Scott? So, uh, so it's very interesting. And I, I, a part of the reason why um, I, I really wanted to have this talking about race event is because I, uh, you know, so initially uh, it, it seemed reasonable to me to think that you could go in um, kind of because Baltimore is such a great public health city, right? We've got great uh, public health. Uh, uh, faculty at our universities. We've got a great hospitals. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing public health city. Uh, but, but really, harm reduction isn't really a part of the curriculum at, at most of these, uh, uh, you know, schools of nursing and, uh, and, and uh, medical school. Uh, and so it, it really doesn't uh, get into the practice. Uh, but then also, um, you know, we haven't had historically really strong community-based organizations uh, uh, that were knowledgeable about harm reduction and, and um, uh, able to sort of educate and, 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 and um, energize the community around harm reduction. And that, now that's changing. Uh, um, definitely there are a number of uh, organizations that are uh, in that space now and, and making great progress on that. But when, when you have that situation where sort of within the professional world, harm reduction isn't really um, endorsed, and, and, and fully understood, and then also at the community level, um, you, you need more work to be done to sort of help community folks to understand, because uh, very often when you talk to people who are in neighborhoods that are experiencing, uh, you know, uh, a high concentration of, of, of drug use and, and, and many of the things that may be associated uh, with that, when you sit down to, with them and sort of under, uh, help them understand sort of what does harm reduction mean and what could it mean in your community specifically, and I think that's the really important part of what uh, Professor Roberts and, uh, and, and Cassandra are, are talking about. It's like, you know, there's harm reduction in, in, in Oregon or in Seattle or in San Francisco, uh, but, but Baltimore is a different city with a, with a very different sort of racial history. And so how do we make harm reduction sort of fit what Baltimore is as opposed to sort of uh, thinking about what harm reduction looks like in Europe and believing that 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 we can just drop that down in Baltimore and it's going to make sense. And I think that's the challenge that, 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 that Baltimore and, and really Maryland uh, more generally has. It's like, how do we make harm reduction work, uh, uh, given our history, given our realities, and quite honestly, given our resources? Uh, we, we, we've got, we're a very resource-rich state uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. And so how do we get those resources focused on, again, I, I love what Professor uh, Roberts just said, not just keeping people from going over the side of the cliff, but making sure that they have a road to get to <laughs> right. where they actually right. need to be. Right. I, I really love that visual. Uh, uh, and so I think that's what our challenge is here locally. So let, let, I'm going to come back. To, we're going we're to wind our, ways back, wind our way back to Baltimore in this. But So I'd I like to talk with, with, with now with, with uh, Cassandra Frederick and Samuel Roberts to talk a bit about where, these, where plans that is at th- like this have actually been implemented on a, in a thorough way as serious policy change. I mean, I'm, I read a bit about the Ithaca plan that you worked on uh, with Mayor Myrick in, in Ithaca, New York. Could, Cassandra, could you lead us off here? I mean, where, where, where can you point to that says, ah, here it is in America, we did this, it worked? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at New York City, for example, and you look at the transmission of HIV um, AIDS among intravenous um, people, people that use intravenously, you will see that um, the numbers have dropped dramatically, right? Because they took that very seriously, and there were a lot of resources that were pumped into making sure that we could um, deal and create a, a better health outcome for people that use intravenously. Um, and I think that is one of the most shining examples through harm reduction interventions like peers and also uh, syringe exchange. 
Um, I think when you look at a place like Ithaca, which doesn't have the numbers that New York City does, but is a more contained city, I think there are more possibilities. I think the interesting thing about um, doing the work in Ithaca with Mayor Myrick is that for so long, the narrative around the war on drugs has been that black elected officials um, went along with what happened. Um, and you, you can name multiple people who right. went along with it. Um, but you, here you have a young black man who is, who's the executive of a, particular, a small town who has his own personal experience, who is like, I want to try something different in my town. And I actually want to be a leading voice around how we can do this different which um, disrupt the narrative that elected officials of color don't care about this and that we are complicit, right? So you have a young black person who is in an executive role that is ready to change the conversation. You know, little town of Ithaca, New York, got a lot of press for the kind of bold, innovative policies that they put out. But now you don't hear that much stand for because they're doing the work, right? Like they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this work for ourselves? What does this actually look like? What are the resources that we need? And how can we change the narrative about how this is moving? And again, you have a place like Ithaca, which is also known like a place like Eugene, Oregon, and really having a conversation with the black folks that do live in Ithaca about what does it mean for them to be being, what does it mean for them to be a part of a process that is changing the way that the city deals with drugs, knowing that it has to do with um, who is perceived to be struggling in this particular crisis. And so I think we'll, we'll be able to learn a lot from Ithaca about how you bring harm reduction and how do you end the war on drugs in small and mid-sized towns in a way that's authentic and genuine and rooted in the local tradition. So you, you, you know, know I would, Go I ahead, would please, Dr. Roberts, go ahead. Mark, I would say if you're looking for, um, you know, other examples and, you know, historical examples, you don't have to look any further than your own backyard. I believe Baltimore has had needle exchange since uh, 1997, maybe. Yes, right. Um, maybe even earlier than that. And that was under, you know, hey, a visionary uh, black uh, political leader. That was Kurt Schmoke, um, who had been a prosecutor before he entered city hall politics and who knew that literally from his experience knew that you cannot prosecute your way um, out of what was manifestly a public health problem and baltimore and 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 smoke uh you know had had gone uh before congress in the late 1980s to testify about this and even when congress you know really kind of stood against him uh he stood even in the late 1980s and early 1990s as someone who uh you know had that vision of what harm reduction should look like. And Baltimore brought its HIV rates down dramatically. And I'm sorry, I said 1997. I meant to say 1992, actually. It's the early 1990s when Baltimore uh, brought needle exchange around. Um, you see this also in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, where under a white mayor, but um, I believe it was their first black police chief, who said, you know what, let's try not prosecuting people for drug use if, they, if they're you know, at a needle exchange and see what happens. And Nashville was able to bring down its HIV rate as a result as well in the mid-1990s. So those examples are all across the country. Um, and it's, it's, it's been shown to work, not just in the United States, but in countries all over the world. So I guess part of the question for me has been, having both been involved in this years back um, as an organizer and a therapist in the 70s and 80s, Working in, in, in around these issues, and also now on the on the air for almost a quarter of a century, and trying to kind of really push on the air for a change in public policy that makes sense, um, that doesn't incarcerate people and just deals with addiction in a different way, uh, in a in a wiser way. So you take a city like Baltimore, which you two are about to visit, and that Scott and I both live in, and a city that has a huge addiction problem. Um, that has a problem of violence and complete dislocation and dispossession of a plurality of poor working class black people in the city. Um, the majority of the population is black, but I'm talking about people who are living in, in the communities where the violence and drugs take place. 
And I, how do you create a conversation, both with the public and with people who are going to create the policy, to, to just really begin to end our way of doing things, knowing that we're not going to incarcerate, incarcerate our way out of this, begin to make some sense in policies that actually help human beings reach a new life rather than what we do now. And I think that, you know, and if, if it can be done in Baltimore, I don't be down in my own city here, but if it can be done in Baltimore, then it can be done anywhere, um, given the, the, the economic situation here. I mean, what, 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 what would your thoughts be on that? Dr. Robertson, want to lead off so, and then we go to Cassandra? Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big question, right? Mark? Yeah. I mean, what do we do about this? And I, w- and I would say, first of all, we could think about how we frame the question. When we talk about places like Baltimore that have a big drug problem, quote unquote, right? Is it so much that it's a big drug problem? Or are there also other social ills right. that could be addressed? Right. When we think about when we think about drug problems, we think about we we all have an image of what a drug user is, quote unquote. But in fact, most people who use drugs, I mean, it's it's a really it's about the variety is as wide as there are types of people in the world and in the country the ones who are most visible to us are the ones who are the most socially marginalized and so they become the face of the drug problem quote unquote. i don't know if that makes sense yeah it does um so i i would encourage you to say so when you say you know for in cities like san francisco or you know in new york in the 80s and 90s when there were like large homeless populations when people often attributed it to the drug problem well it was actually a you know, it was a homelessness problem. Um, most people who ever have had a problem with drugs, you actually don't know it. Um, because the average duration will be several years. They get a handle of it. And if they have their, if they have their, uh, their resources, they can actually find a way to, you know, through recovery, through therapy, through whatever works for them, get their way out of it. There is a group of people who are so socially and economically vulnerable that they, they are the ones who are visible to us. So I would just, first of all, caution all of us against thinking that the drug problem is manifest only in those people that we see. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, makes, it makes you sense to me. Cassandra, how, what would you add on to that? Where would you take that? You know, I would also add on that that kind of education and that kind of reframing is something that needs to happen in the public. I think especially when it comes to, um, you know, I'm black, so when it comes to my community, um, I think there's just so much miseducation about how this started and what was the purpose of it. Um, You cannot separate the racialized response and the racialized um, strategy um, apart from people struggling with drugs. You can't take them apart. And so if you're only having a half-baked measure that only deals with people struggling but not dealing with how we got here in the first place, then you're not going to have a conversation that is successful about dealing with the systematic issues that Dr. Roberts brought up. And so for me, a place like Baltimore, I think there's an education that needs to happen. But also I, I don't even, I wouldn't even frame it as education. I think people already know what's happening. They might not know the dates, they might not know the names, but I feel like being black in America, you know that you're living a racialized life and that things don't work out for you the same way. And I think it's about public health and social sciences, about giving people the language about what is actually happening in their community, because you can't solve a problem if you don't know you have it. So, and what you're, so what you're saying. I would also. Go ahead, okay, go ahead. Mark, if I could just add one more thing to that too, is that, um, to add some clarity for your listeners to have some more clarity on various types of harm reduction practices, we should also maybe speak for a, a brief moment about what actually happens in your average needle exchange or in your average supervised injection facility. And in most of those places that I visited, it's not a simple matter of, you know, someone walks in and they get a needle and then they leave. That could be it, but it's usually more than that. Usually, quite often, these are places where there is someone saying, hey, have you eaten today? You know, how is your housing situation looking? When was the last time you had a dental checkup or a medical exam? So harm reduction in the 21st century, in 2020, 
2017 looks a lot like, you know, what we used to call anti-poverty work before, you know, honestly, before we took, you know, before we got rid of the war on poverty. Right. right. A lot of these places are, are health clinics. They can help you. get. These are recovery places as well. Um, so a lot of what we associate with the quote-unquote drug problem is actually the problem with how we deal with a certain segment of our population and how we've marginalized them. And so good harm reduction, you know, the way I would define harm reduction, maybe not everybody, but good harm reduction is the kind of outreach and empowerment to people who have been told for years, perhaps all of their lives, you know, you do not matter. And reversing that by saying, actually, you know, you do matter. You know, you need something to eat. Where are you sleeping tonight? And many people that I've met who have successfully gone into recovery, who be, and they often began in harm reduction because they, for years no one had ever actually shown them that sort of human kindness. So there is, there's the data that I mentioned earlier, which is it's in. It's been in for decades that harm reduction works as good public policy. But I think also on a, um, on a moral and ethical, like how we think about our political ethics, there's something very compelling about that, that after 40 years of mass incarceration, of war on drugs, of, um, you know, just, you know, homophobia, of, of, you know, misogynistic policies and scaling back social welfare benefits for people who need them most, there's something really compelling and encouraging about a philosophy that actually just, you know, that, deal, that deals with people on those terms. So I would just like to, to stop the conversation, let, our, let your listeners know that this is not a compromise or a retreat from good public health. It's actually the adoption of older proven values, um, but also put with newer public policy uh, orientation. So I'd, I'd just like to add just one more piece, just specifically. Scott, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was about to ask you a question, but go ahead. Yep. Oh, yeah. A thing that I think is really critical in Baltimore, if, if you look at some of the other places that I, I some of the other cities, you know, uh, maybe comparable cities that, that um, I think are really advancing in, in harm reduction in ways that I, I would love to see in Baltimore. Um, they have a really sort of active, uh, uh, sometimes referred to as users union or, or, or whatever term you want to use, but, but folks with lived experience who are, who are leading the charge, who are, who are um, informed and able to advocate and able to get uh, access to uh, stakeholders uh, and, and in a way that I think hasn't happened yet in Baltimore. And, and some of that may be related to some of the things that I think, um, you know, my colleagues uh, Cassandra and Professor Roberts are talking about in terms of, you know, in a place, uh, in a city like Baltimore, uh, that's majority uh, African-American, those groups are going to be African-American. And, and there may be just a, 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 a lessening of the desire to hear from those groups as opposed to a place like San Francisco or Seattle, where maybe the groups will be uh, a bit more, uh, mixed and maybe even primarily white. Uh, and so that's something that I think Baltimore has to get over uh, in terms of really being able to do something that's going to help communities uh, is to really be, uh, open up a space at the table for people with lived experience and really um, uh, not just go to them with ideas, but actually uh, encourage uh, folks to contribute to uh, thinking about how can we address uh, these issues again, and not just addiction, but the housing issues, the issues in terms of community uh, 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 police relations, and, and, and obviously many other things that we could talk about. I, I think that's really critical, and it hasn't quite happened yet in Baltimore, uh, but I know that there's a coalition of uh, community-based organizations uh, called Bridges that is really uh, uh, beginning to lay the platform uh, for supporting people with lived experience and being able to be a part of uh, the conversation. Well, I, I... And, and you know, uh, Mark, this, this is also why it's so important that is recognized as part of progressive politics and progressive black politics as well. That there is, as Scott really hit the nail on the head there, that there are elements, I mean, not elements, really at its very elemental core at which harm reduction as it is practiced in communities of color, in black communities, it is a civil rights practice. It is not very different except removed in, in a, by a few decades in time from the poor people's movement that King, uh, over which King was assassinated, um, and that Coretta and David Abernathy continued after his uh, demise, and, and um, Jesse Jackson. It is not different from the welfare rights movement 
of the 19, uh, late 1960s into the 1970s. Um, it is very much aligned today in various cities with Black Lives Matter, with uh, queer uh, rights and independence movements. Um, it, it, it needs to be recognized, not just by the mainstream, but also by black politics as well, as being part of black progressive uh, politics as, as, as well. And that's, I think that's a really important thing, that this is not something that's just in addition to or corrective to public health, but actually a very compelling force in how we think about politics in the 21st century. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right, considering the moment that we're in around the racialized response to the heroin crisis. This is one of the primary, this should be one of the primary issues for black progressives and elected officials to take up and have a conversation to make sure that we're not cut out of the progress. Because the way that it is going, we could end the heroin crisis in communities that are more well-off and white and keep them, and it can still persist in communities of color. And we've seen this happen way too many times to be surprised if it does happen. So I hope this conversation has inspired all of you out there to join this conversation tomorrow night on June the 8th, 2017, tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. at the University of Baltimore Law School's Moot Courtroom uh, on, Saint, on, uh, on Mount Royal Avenue. You can go to eventbrite.com preview uh, and get more information. And, uh, but do just show up, be part of this conversation. I want to thank our guest, you just heard Cassandra Frederick, who is New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance, Dr. Samuel Roberts, Associate Professor of History at Columbia University and Associate Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, and Scott Nolan, who is Director of Drug Addiction Treatment Programs for the Open Society Institute of Baltimore. Join the Open Society tomorrow night for the next conversation on talking about race with these folks, and uh, let's get down to the bottom of what we have to do. And thank the three of you so much for joining us today. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information, www.mecu.com.